Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, in Episode 23, State of Texas versus John Stephen Gardner, Michael and I will talk about the case against Gardner, a Mississippi man who was convicted, convicted and sentenced to death for the 2005 murder of his estranged wife, Tammy. In an effort to mitigate Gardner's punishment, his post-conviction attorneys raised abandonment rage, arguing that a jury hearing about the disorder would not have sentenced their client to death. Michael and I will talk about the evidence linking Gardner to the shooting death of Tammy Don Gardner, the post-conviction arguments made in an effort to mitigate his punishment, and his January 15, 2020 execution in the death chamber at Huntsville. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um yeah, I had to reorganize the numbers because you didn't do clear and convincing last week. Oh, <laughs> gotta love that. Hey, I'm just yeah. saying I'd rather be doing this. That was a he- that, that that was a headache last week. You know, you really probably y'all could have waited a couple weeks and done the show. No joke. Then, <laughs> but you know, this At least is waited till Friday, anybody Saturday who's surprised. Morning. Anybody who's surprised at how it played out has not been paying attention. You know for the last four years. You know, I, I actually Sean said something similar to that to me. I was like, man, I can't believe he actually did that. And you know, also the closeness, but I you know, the way it ended on election night. And I told John, I was like, I can't believe that actually just happened. And he was like, Michael We've been watching this guy for four years. Anything less would be a shock to me. So, I mean, true, true. Well, I, you know, he also, though, he's, uh, the thing is, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning when I got up, 
neither one of them had enough electoral college votes. Oh, yeah. I don't think Biden got over the 270 until Saturday morning. And that is doubtful. <laughs> According well, to mean, some sources. I was about to say, yeah. Because that I, is from sources. The last from what I, I saw, his only challenge in Pennsylvania got thrown out, but I don't know. Yeah. From what I understand, the the whole thing on Saturday was a prediction. Yeah, not I mean, an that's actual... all it is until, until I want to say, well, I thought it was the 10th. I'm not sure what the certification day is, but until the people actually go to D.C. and pledge their electoral votes, it's not official until then. Okay, right. So, um, yeah, so we could still have some interesting, yeah. So I don't know. There were some, I mean, there were some irregularities that I noted just watching in, you know, social media and things like that a little bit during the day Tuesday and, and after, uh, Tuesday in a couple of hot spots. I mean, in Philadelphia, poll wa- poll workers would not allow a person identifying himself as a poll watcher who was certified as a poll watcher to come into the, the polling place and observe what was going on. And what people don't understand is the appearance of impropriety can be even worse than actually doing anything wrong. Right. Well, I mean, and, you know, they did bring up a good point. You know, they said, you know, he does have the option to challenge these things. He said most um, most of the um, recounts and things like that that go through the polls, you'll usually see maybe a thousand jump uh, for, you know, one way or the other. Um, right now, as it stands with 98% in, it's 3.371 to 3.25. So, I mean, right. in PA especially, he's opened up quite a lead. So, I, I just – it's gotten beyond the realm of speculation to me on that one, at least that stage. There's others that I, I – even I in, like, Nevada, I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. But, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's but like we talked about on um, I guess it was Wednesday or Thursday. I was about to say the days are running together at this point. I know, and I had a I had an awful day today, so you know, don't trust me on anything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but. Yeah, I think he has a right, and and anybody who's surprised that he's doing it, anybody who's anybody who doesn't understand the way he's doing it, hasn't been paying attention. Right, absolutely. Um, I don't I think mean, there's any, and I don't think there's anything wrong with him being who he is. And that's exactly what it is, you know. Like like Sean told me, you know, if you have if you, if this comes as a shock to you, you haven't been paying attention the past four years. He wasn't right. going to go down without swinging. I, I mean, you're probably right. Biden probably wouldn't have went down without swinging either. 
Um, I'd like to say because he is a career politician that I would hope that Biden would have been would have been able to graciously concede, but you know it is what it is. I, I just hope that well before January you have 20th, to look at somebody decides to make up their mind. The, the but look at the last four years. Has Nancy Pelosi graciously accepted Trump as president of the United States? Hell no. Oh no! I mean. If you would have watched I mean, the show she last has night, been, we, both, we all said that uh, – if you would have watched the show last night, we all said that she's uh, sitting there in a seat that needs to be filled by somebody else. But we also said the same about Mitch. We're just – I think a lot of Americans, and I think that's what came out in this election, they're very divided, and they're tired of people playing BS partisan politics. Exactly. Yeah, and just like I, 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 the – and it is. A lot of people are tired about it. Uh, Biden tried to, you know, he's weaponized COVID. But guess what? The president cannot do any more with a national crisis like that than Trump did. It's up to the state governments to regulate within their states. Trump could not have said, okay, no Mardi Gras in New Orleans this year because we've got this odd virus that's hard, you know, virulent and and highly contagious. Well, and um, I would agree with that. I mean, this, last the night, state somebody, of Louisiana would have never stood for that. Last night, somebody in, on the show, uh, one of the co-hosts on the show said something about our uh, – about our governor here in Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, and I said, well, you know, I got to get you to pump your brakes a little bit on that one because, for the love of Jesus, he tried to put a mask mandate in, and the police were like, no, we're not going to enforce it. So, I mean, at a certain point, your hands are tied, right. I would agree. Correct. Uh, and, yeah, and governors as well. But, like I said, Trump could not – I mean, I, I saw that criticism of Trump um, because – in in New Orleans and Louisiana, the first cases, boy, those things showed up a couple weeks after Mardi Gras. Actually, I don't know if you know this. Uh, I don't know if you've been keeping up with our local headlines here in Arkansas, but uh, it was either yesterday or today. Uh, our head coach, uh, Sam Pittman, tested positive. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, there. Apparently, the LSU Alabama game. There's a COVID. Yeah, there's three I was afraid games to, that have been I was afraid now. to see was it Alabama or was it LSU? Oh yeah, it's Alabama. It's Alabama, LSU, okay. uh Mississippi State and whoever they're playing and then somebody else. I forget who the third Texas A&M and somebody. So, but LSU has COVID positive COVID? Um, I'm not sure why they canceled the game. I would have to uh Okay. My buddy my buddy Daniel's been kind of sharing the stuff with me as we've been going along. Uh, Auburn and Mississippi State, Vols and Aggies, Memphis and Navy also got postponed. Hold on. I'm pulling up the uh, thing from okay. LSU. Alabama will not play LSU this weekend. LSU was unable to meet the SEC's minimum requirement of 53 healthy players for this weekend. Um, um, okay. So, yeah, LSU has, I guess, a few positive cases. Okay, yeah, I was afraid of that. So, but uh, anyway, so that is uh, that is a 2020 election. Hopefully, there'll be some more clarity 
by next week. Yeah, or at least some specific cases, man, you could reference. I'm still waiting to get a specific, like, judgments. All I've seen is the judge struck it down, but I haven't even seen, like, a judge come out and comment on why they struck stuff down. I mean, it's read between Uh, the lines why they struck it down, but at the same time, I'd rather have a judge be like, hey, this is why I struck this down. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, at this at this stage in the in the litigation, I mean, I'll I'll see if I can find any of the opinions or any of the uh, orders. But at this stage, a judge can't really. The judges are doing it summarily. It may be on technical procedural flaws. Uh huh. Oh, okay, okay. Rather than on the merits, it's kind of oh, okay. like okay. So he's not it, It's kind of like saying he he can't he can't produce evidence to prove his claims. Okay. Okay. So he can't proceed. Um, it could be that it's in the wrong. You know that he's filing. Um, you know. And again, this well, is an example shooting off the top of my enough, head. You'd think his lawyer uh, would be good enough to know which freaking jurisdiction to file under. Yeah, but it can no, it can be incredibly complicated. Right. It can be incredibly complicated. Oh yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. one thing I will so, say though no, that, that's something one thing I will say though that just completely baffles me, and maybe you can clear this up for me. So Tuesday night, he said he was going to take PA to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. He didn't file anything or anything until I believe it was Thursday when they reiterated that he was talking about taking PA to the Supreme Court. My thing is this, though. When Bush took Gore to the Supreme Court, he had to prove irreparable harm. Bush had a concession from Uh, Gore. Where does Trump have irreparable harm? Well, I I don't know that I it wasn't it wasn't Bush who was challenging the results of the 2000 election. It right, was cool. He had to he was so, appealing the Florida choices. I, I well that yeah and and that may be one of the problems is that he may Trump have to may blah, blah, Trump may have to do battle in individual states mm-hmm. before moving into the federal system. Okay. And there are limits so to what the federal system can do anyway. Right. Okay. So, okay. so um, he may have some work to do before he even thinks about using the uh before he even thinks about going that route. Right. Right. Okay. Um so that that's something uh, he would have to go he would have to follow writ to the US Supreme Court. And ask the U.S. Supreme Court to look at the case. Okay. But again, he so probably has to do. There's not even a guarantee no. they'd look at it. Um, no, there's no guarantee, although they might uh, at least summarily mm-hmm. look at it. Um, I'm looking here to see. I could imagine on the Supreme Court website. I could imagine that he, they would at least be willing to listen, 
just because of the importance of the of the issue at hand. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, the other argument I've heard is the Supreme Court listens to constitutional problems. Where's the constitutional problem? I don't know. Uh, well, there uh, there certainly would be a constitutional problem with the election of a president who perhaps uh, did not get that there was if there were regular irregularities in voting Mm -hmm. and ballots you know like you and I talked we were talking about the mail-in ballots well Um, I mean we've talked about mail-in ballots and I I do I do subscribe to the theory that I mean the chickens just came home to roost where he told everybody not to vote by mail well they all voted by in person and those were count those votes were counted before the mail in votes and now you're complaining about the fact that you got no mail in ballots. Well, no, but what part of the expect? problem one of the problems with the mail in votes is the a problem with mail in voting is that it makes it very difficult to confirm that the person who cast the ballot by mail in is mm-hmm. a legal registered voter in the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. I mean, I I saw Judge Judy, a snippet of a Judge Judy case, and then Governor John Bell Edwards interrupted Judge Judy, uh, where a woman filled out another person's ballot. Mm-hmm. And Judge Judy was questioning her about that. I don't know what the outcome was. But no, I do know if, that if, if you I, filled out Haley's ballot. And mailed it in for her, even though you think you know how she vote would vote, that's illegal. Right, exactly, exactly. Now I do okay. know that in Texas, and this is actually substantiated, um, somebody was arrested on I believe 107 counts of voter fraud because he, I believe, he works at a nursery nursing home. Excuse me. A nursing home and uh, signed up like 107 residents without their knowledge to uh, to vote. Uh-huh. So he's in a world correct. of shit. Yeah, correct. And that that's something. These are individuals who were not even aware that they were being registered to vote. So how do we know how they would have voted? Right, exactly. And I mean, the article that I saw on it didn't specify whether they were Republican or Democrat, you know, anything like that. But uh, it did say that they, you know, they illegally registered like 107 of the residents to vote. And it doesn't matter whether it was done for the Republicans or the Democrats. It does not matter. It is the fact that the uh, people who who may not be qualified to vote because they may have dementia or Alzheimer's, they may not mm-hmm. be U.S. citizens. You know, that's another big thing is is there's this push to let people who are not U.S. citizens vote because they live here. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if no, you're going to live here and you one. want to vote, I, I, I think that you should renounce your foreign citizenship and become a U.S. citizen, and then you can vote. Right. I don't think that immigrants living here illegally or legally, if mm-hmm. they're not citizens of the United States of America, they should not vote in elections, just as if I were living over in England – I would not vote in the parliamentary elections because I'm not an English citizen. Right. And while parliament may affect my life while I'm there, I don't have a legal right to vote. Mhm. Right. You know, so that's that's um so Anyway, so hopefully next week we'll have some more some more clarity on the issue. Um, I I have some questions myself, and hopefully somewhere some how uh, we'll get some answers. Absolutely. Uh, maybe the media will now turn on Joe Biden and start, you know, looking for. The negative and looking for the dirt and looking for um, – because that's generally what happens. You know, the right. U.S. president, regardless of party, is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Absolutely. And so um, so we shall see. So uh, the world lost a um, an icon on Sunday. As you have heard, and a lot of listeners out there heard, um, Alex Trebek, the host of the long-running and very popular game show Jeopardy, I think it's in the Guinness World Records of, you know, like mm-hmm. the most episodes of any game show right. ever. Um, he lost his battle with pancreatic cancer on Sunday. He passed away surrounded by his family. He mm-hmm. was uh, either 79 or 80. I don't know whether he had made his 80th birthday yet or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's a great loss. He he was actually, he filmed his last episodes with Jeopardy that will play through the end of the year. Right. Uh, about two weeks ago. And he was at home with his family. He was he was not ill. He was not um, in a lot of pain. So he was fairly stable at the time, which I, I, I think is good. He wasn't uh, – he was able to spend time with his loved ones and uh, make every moment count. And, and I'm glad that he had that and they had that with him because it's – it's hard when someone with cancer goes downhill really fast. Right. And and then they, you know, they die before you have time to, you know, say all the unsaid things and and before they have time to get closure in their own lives. So I'm I'm glad he was healthy enough and stable enough to have really good good time with his family. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to take a minute, a few minutes, and have a little tribute to 
Alex Trebek. Absolutely. This audio comes from an ABC News uh, piece on it. Well, tonight here, we take a moment to celebrate the life of Alex Trebek. And this evening, Alex, in his own words, how he wanted to spend his final days and what those closest to him have now revealed tonight. Alex Trebek began 37 years ago. And now, here is the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. And it was 18 months ago, Trebek revealed he was battling stage four pancreatic cancer. I'm going to fight this, and I'm going to keep working. During his valiant battle, Trebek set an example for all of us, what it means to be brave. He often said this wasn't about him, it was about the millions facing similar battles. He kept coming to work, and there was this moment. Did you come up with the right one? No? What it is, we love you, Alka. That's very kind. Thank you. Tonight, we have learned he was in the studio filming just 11 days ago, taping shows that will air through the end of this year. He is survived by his wife of 30 years, Jean, and his children. And this is what he said to our own T.J. Holmes when T.J. asked if he ever used the word burden with his wife, who was caring for him. He says, you're not a burden. Uh, she's a saint. Uh, but she has so much goodness in her that she is always giving out, always putting out to help me get over difficult moments. And there have been some difficult moments. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm just in awe of, uh, the way she handles it. And it was in Alex's book, his wish for his final days. I'll be perfectly content if that's how my story ends. Sitting on the swing with the woman I love, my soulmate, and our two wonderful children nearby. The weather is beautiful. The sun is shining into a mild, mild-looking sky. And there's not a cloud in sight. Today, the executive producer of Jeopardy! saying that is exactly how Alex Trebek said goodbye. Hi everyone, George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch live events. Okay, that's enough of that. All right. So, uh, that was an amazing... He was really amazing. And, and from what oh, I absolutely. understand from several people who appeared on Jeopardy!, he was as nice and personable behind the scenes as he was on camera. Um, oh, and I remember one of, the, one of the contestants that was probably a very tough, uh, a tough one for him because the contestant was on right after he got his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And she was also suffering from pancreatic cancer. And oh, going wow. through a very tough time. And she actually passed away before her episodes aired. Damn. And he, uh, on, I think, the last the last episode that she aired on, there was like a little, you know, he made a little statement. And you could mm-hmm. tell it was kind of hard for him because she was going through exactly what he was going through. 
Well, you know, I, I, we were talking about this Sunday, but one of the things I'm going to remember, of course, I'm, you know, one of the younger generation being only 30, but one of the things I'm always going to remember is the SNL skits with uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Burt Reynolds, I yeah. want to say it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just hilarity. And, you know, there was one where they actually brought Trebek on to uh, mess with Will Ferrell. And just mm-hmm. hilarious. Hilariousness. He was, and he. That was another thing too that was endearing about him. He didn't take himself as seriously as he seemed. <laughs> he didn't take right. himself too seriously. Absolutely. And uh, so, uh, and he had there are some bloopers of there was like one episode where one of the t- categories was football. Mm-hmm. And the the contestants, I mean, not one of them could get the answer on anything right, you know, not even close. And his reaction was really funny because he kind of he kind of teased him about, you know, so football's not your thing, or something right? Like that. <laughs> and so, My goodness. Um, I, and I think one of them was like the the last clue. You're not even going to try. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It was like you know, it's something easy like how many points in a touchdown. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the question was not; it wasn't a complicated question, uh, or it wasn't a complicated answer, and the contestants did not even try to come up with a question. Absolutely. Uh, I took the online test for for the show once and I was really disappointed in my performance and I've never done it again. <laughs> right. So I just, uh, I'm not good with science and math. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I, Same. I kind of froze up when I was trying to take it. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't happy with it. So that's the end of my jeopardy dreams. It happens. All right. So now we get on to John Stephen Gardner. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We, of course, tried to talk about him a few weeks ago, and we had some technical issues. And once again, I apologize for uh, the platform apparently thought my Internet was not working, even though the indicator on my laptop said otherwise. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it happens. So, yeah, so tonight, I think it's safe for us not both being internet dependent. Exactly. As a rule. Um, exactly. Although, if, if you go, I don't know what I'm going to do. Hmm. Right. So, um, but uh, we've had pretty good luck this way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, just to kind of refresh memories of anyone who was listening uh, that eventful evening, uh, John Stephen Gardner was born in Mississippi, Laurel, Mississippi, which is, you said, near Meridian, kind of in south. Yeah, Central. I think it, I think it was in the southern part, southern central Mississippi, 
uh, Hattiesburg, I believe is what you said. Uh, he joined the Army, uh, but the Army life was not for him. And the Army agreed that he was not cut out to be a soldier. And so the Army refused to allow him to reenlist. Um, there's also mention of him actually faking a mental illness in an effort to get out of the army. So um, take that as you will. He married and divorced fairly quickly. Uh, We don't know a lot about that first marriage, although I would guess that there probably was some level of domestic violence because John Stephen Gardner seemed to have a controlling uh, abusive personality. Uh, He certainly displayed that with his subsequent marriages. And so I think it's a safe bet that his first marriage was not a happy-go-lucky John Gardner as the husband. Uh, His second marriage was to a 17-year-old girl named Rhoda. And then apparently John Stephen Gardner wanted to divorce Rhoda or wanted Rhoda to divorce him. But Rhoda, who was expecting her first child with John Stephen Gardner, declined to um, end the marriage. And that's when John Stephen Gardner decided that Rhoda had to die. Right, And so his means of accomplishing that was to hide and lay in wait. And when Rhoda came around, he came out from the bushes. He shot her in the abdomen. And then he stood over and shot her two more times, once in the head. Um, Based on that, his intent was to kill her. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind, and I don't think there's any doubt in anybody else's mind, uh, that the intent was to kill her, but she did not die on the spot. She was taken to a hospital mm-hmm. where uh, she died several weeks later from complications. She had been mm-hmm. pregnant, and there were complications after she miscarried that child that led to her death. Um John Stephen Gardner, Gardner, in spite of the intent and in spite of Rhoda's death, was not charged with a manslaughter, murder, or any form of homicide. Um, more likely than not, that may have been because the prosecutor did not think with the death occurring several weeks later and occurring as a result of, of medical complications that they may not have felt that they could prove the shooting caused her death. Right. Um, Gardner certainly would have had an argument that it was not, you know, it wasn't him shooting her, it was medical malpractice. Mm-hmm. So he was charged and convicted with an assault. He was sentenced to prison time, and he did do time in prison in Mississippi. While he was in prison, he met wife, Margaret, and when he was released, they married. And uh, Margaret had a minor daughter 
named Becky. And in addition to abusing Margaret during their brief marriage, Gardner abused Becky. And in fact, Margaret divorced him because of an assault on Becky that resulted in her needing stitches in her head. Uh-huh. By Gardner. Um, Gardner then, as though things weren't bad enough for him, he elected to kidnap Margaret and engage in a high-speed chase. Authorities, law enforcement. And that resulted in his arrest and return to prison. Uh, Margaret was able to obtain her divorce, and uh, she actually, at the time of the trial in 2006, was still living in fear of John Stephen Gardner, as was her daughter, Becky. Um, Hmm. And, you know, I mean, Gardner threatened Margaret, threatened her child. He, he He was a piece of frickin' work. Okay. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna put it out there. He was a piece of freaking work. Um, uh, it certainly sounds like it. He needed somebody, you know, more aggressive, who perhaps when he struck them the first time would beat the living crap out of him, mm-hmm. and make make him see that sometimes they hit back and it really, really hurts. Um, or they wait till you go to sleep and then they knock you upside the head with a cast iron frying pan. Uh, and these these women were southern women. I I don't understand why so many women took so much crap from John Stephen Gardner. Um, of course, then again, he he did like to brag about killing Rhoda, so that may have also been uh, that may have also been a reason that they didn't want to escalate his Any further. temper. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I, I, I would have, that wouldn't have bothered me. <laughs> I still, the first time he hit me, I would have hit him back. Or I would have waited till he was asleep and then knocked him upside the head with a cast iron frying pan and said, next time, one of us is going to the undertaker and the other one's going to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, my mama raised me not to take that shit. So, <laughs> right. Um, so then uh, John Stephen Gardner met a woman named Sandra, and they were married. And, of course, again, his marriage to Sandra was marred by domestic violence. They had a son, Nicholas. They divorced in the late 90s. Uh, and Sandra had to bring Nicholas to see his father, which was very difficult for her. And in 2001, she actually had to take out a protective order because Gardner mm-hmm. uh, did not let things go. And that was a two-year protective order through 2003. Uh, again, Sandra and Margaret both lived in fear of Gardner up to his murder trial in in Collin County, Texas in 2006. Mm -hmm. Uh, At some point, he met Tammy Dawn Tate, who was originally from Oklahoma. She worked for a company that was based in Collin County, Texas. I think they provided some type of equestrian gear 
um, saddles, bridles, things like that. And um, they actually moved to Collin County when he and Tammy got married. Mm-hmm. But of course, as with his four prior mar- or three prior marriages confirmed, first prior mar- first marriage suspected uh, domestic violence toward Tammy and toward her daughter from a prior relationship um, was a problem in their relationship. And uh, he actually abused Tammy's daughter, who was a minor at the time. Okay. In Christmas 2004, Tammy borrowed money from her employer to file for divorce against Gardner. And Gardner's family came to Collin County. That's uh, north of Dallas, as I understand it. Um, and moved Gardner back to Mississippi. He went to live with his sister and brother-in-law in Laurel. Um, it's interesting when they talk about Gardner's background, they say his dad was some kind of itinerant pastor, but then they also say that he, he was born and raised in Laurel. So he moved around within the community in Laurel. He's like a Baptist right. preacher. Um, but some of that may also have been an attempt to mitigate the punishment because they claim there was abuse in the relationship or in, in the family when Gardner was a child, Mm -hmm. but some of his statements and some of the things, uh, some of the documentary evidence that they found did not support that claim. Um, So while Gardner was staying with his sister and brother-in-law, he had use of a white Chevy Silverado pickup truck with Mississippi plates. Right. On January 20th, 2005, uh, Gardner repeatedly called and texted Tammy, who did not respond to his text. And the subject of his text was the pending divorce. Now, while it's argued that Gardner wasn't contesting the divorce, he was sending texts to Tammy that said, are you going to go through with it, yes or no? And repeatedly asking her, are you going through with it, are you going through with it, are you going through with it? Sometimes, are you going through with it would be in all caps, which, as we know from Internet lingo, speak, whatever you want to call it, all caps means you're yelling. So... He may not have been opposing it in court. He may have been saying, yeah, do what you want. But in reality, in his mind, he was like, bitch, how dare you? Hmm. On the morning of January 23rd, Gardner again repeatedly texted Tammy. The topic, once again, was whether she was going to go through with the divorce. He told his brother-in-law that he was going to visit family in Hattiesburg, and then he got in the pickup truck, and he left. Now, the the trip from Laurel, Mississippi to Anna, Texas, Collin County area, which is north of Dallas, is about seven to eight hours. Yeah, makes sense. Um, They also, police have a 
charge for gas in the pickup truck in Marshall, Texas, which I believe is right at the Louisiana-Texas border. So they they can place Gardner in Texas on January 23rd. Hmm. Um, in the okay. evening on January 23rd, uh, again, Tammy received all these texts while she was bringing her daughter home from church that morning. Um, Gardner was frantic and probably threatening in the text. The topic of the text, the subject of the text, isn't available, readily available, but, you know, you can can guess uh, Mm -hmm. with Gardner's personality that it was probably threatening and and led her to... It wasn't nice in nature, I'm sure. Yeah, led her to be in fear for her life. So she contacted the vice president of the company that she worked for, and she requested a meeting with him. She went to his home, and she met with him for several hours, and basically three hours, and what she wanted was she wanted his help for her to disappear, to go somewhere where nobody would find her. Um, I believe that also would have meant leaving her daughter, Jessie, who lived with her father, Um but this is, I think this shows you that, you know, Tammy was in fear for her life. She felt threatened by Gardner. And Absolutely. she was getting desperate. So, uh, 11 o'clock, uh, Tammy gets home to her house. Um, she was, it was a friend's home, and she was living there rent-free. Um, she had gotten, she had asked Gardner to return his keys when he moved out and he had returned a set of keys to her son. But as it turns out, he had maintained a duplicate set of keys. Mm-hmm. Um, when Tammy got off the phone with her, uh, the vice president of her company, it was about eleven thirteen PM. The next we hear from Tammy is at eleven fifty eight PM. There's a nine one one call place to Collin County Emergency Services. The caller identified herself at Tammy as Tammy and says her husband shot her. Hmm. Um, the hmm. Uh, the 911 operator dispatches police, but first responders, she lived on a, a county road, and first responders initially went to the wrong address. So they arrive at the house where Tammy is 25 minutes after the initial call. Uh, But Tammy has talked to the 911 dispatcher, and there is a partial recording of the call where Tammy identifies the the person who shot her as her husband. She calls him Steve. She says he's left in a white truck with Mississippi plates. And... um, uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of, and, you know, she complains about how her ears are ringing because of the shots and things like that. Okay. So when first responders arrive, they find the house locked and the officer kicks down the door. They find Tammy in the bedroom. There's a lot of blood because she does have a head injury, a head wound. Um, she is 
not as coherent as she initially was, which is not uncommon with head injuries. She's flown by a, helico- by a helicopter to Parkland Hospital in Dallas, um, where she lapses into a coma and dies several days later. I think she died like February 3rd, 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, that evening, Gardner arrives in Laurel, Mississippi. Uh, when his sister asks him about Tammy, he starts crying. And I think so his sister knows something is up, and she knows what he did to Rhoda. Okay, so she's, you know, she's not surprised. Huh. And she finds her husband's gun with five live rounds and one spent round. And it's been placed back in a place where her husband does not keep the gun. So prior to leaving the house that day, Gardner had taken his brother-in-law's gun. Um, The sister urges Gardner to turn himself in. He goes to the, the county law enforcement, and he does speak on the phone to... Collin County detectives, but he's not really forthcoming, and he doesn't make any admissions. Right. Now, again, while they're investigating, they do find the credit card charge in Marshall, Texas. Um, January 25th, actually, is when Tammy died. Uh, so it was two days later. I thought I thought for some reason it was February 3rd. I don't know where I got that date. Uh, Gardner hmm. was arrested in Laurel, Mississippi on February 1st. So even though he had gone to the police station and spoken to Collin County authorities, he was not arrested immediately. Hmm. Okay. Um, he was indicted initially. And then there was some flaw with the indictment, so that was dismissed, and he was reindicted for capital murder. Um, I think what they did was they did capital murder on the theory of either burglary or tampering with a witness or, or pre- trying to prevent a witness in a proceeding from testifying. Right. Um, so they go to trial in 2006, a little bit more than a year after the murder. Um, the prosecution case is pretty strong. There's a 911 call from from Tammy, uh, that identifies her, says she was shot by her husband, identifies her husband as Stephen Gardner, and identifies the truck with the Mississippi plates. Um, they have the gas purchase in Marshall, Texas. They have a second purchase in Marshall, Texas. They know an amount, but it was probably from the convenience store. They found backing for a pair of work gloves in the truck, and the cost of the gloves is consistent with the second purchase. Mm-hmm. So he could have bought a pair of work gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints. Um, They did find Tammy's keys outside that locked house in the bed of her truck. 
They did, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like Gardner wanted to hide how he gained access to the house. And so he took Tammy's keys out of the house and left them outside to make it look like those were the keys he used to get inside when he had another set that he likely disposed of in the first ditch. And one of the responders, as he was going to respond to the call, did see a truck, a white truck pulled alongside a ditch near Tammy's house. But at the time, he didn't know that a white truck was involved, and so he didn't really, he didn't stop and identify who was in the truck or anything like that. Um, They also had fibers consistent with Tammy's robe found in the truck. Gardner's fingerprints were also found in the truck which, you know, ties him to the truck. And the brother-in-law's gun was matched to the weapon used to kill Tammy, to shoot Tammy and kill her. Um, The defense at trial really didn't have a lot to go on because in spite of the fact that it is a circumstantial case, it's pretty strong circumstances. uh, They argued there was no direct evidence linking Gardner to Tammy's shooting. Because nobody saw him at the house. Nobody saw him go in the house. Nobody saw him come out of the house. And he never made any direct admissions or statements to anybody that he was involved. Um, They also argued that this was not a capital murder. If it was anything, it was just a murder. Because they said there was no burglary. And they said, how could Gardner have been tampering with a witness or trying to prevent a witness in a a criminal, in a, not a criminal proceeding, in a court proceeding when he wasn't contesting the divorce. But again, he may not have been contesting it in court. Uh, hmm. He may not have been contesting it as far as his family knew. But right. he was texting and calling Tammy incessantly, repeatedly. And one of the questions was, are you going to go through with the divorce? Sometimes in all caps. So so he was still trying to not believe it. So he was just, I don't know. This dude's crazy. He, he was, you know, apparently, again, with his pattern of domestic violence, Margaret, you know, Margaret's one of the people that's, that did speak out about her relationship with Gardner. And she said when they were dating, it was wonderful. He was wonderful. But when they got married, it was like he was a different person. He became possessive and controlling and jealous. Right. And that's generally the pattern. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, I mean, that sounds very pattern. That sounds, well, you know, and that sounds like I, a pattern, excuse me. I mean, I've, you know, I know, I know a lot of women who, who thought, oh, he's jealous. He really loves me. No, he really doesn't. Hey, right. You know, that, and that's one thing too, that I'm glad my mom was who she was because she also raised us not to see that type of behavior as a, a positive attribute you know somebody who's jealous and worries about where you are and what you're doing and and who you're doing it with 
it's going to be trouble. And if they don't trust you, then there's no relationship. You know. And the same would apply with girlfriends. You know, because it's there. And what a lot of people don't realize is that it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you accuse someone who isn't doing anything wrong of cheating, you do it enough times and they're going to be like, okay, fine. (laughs) I'm going to get accused of it. I might as well do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. True. I can um, see the point. So, uh, in the end, Gardner was convicted of capital murder. Uh, And it doesn't really matter whether it was burglary, because it was burglary. He didn't have a right to be there. He wasn't invited there. You know, uh, he lied to his family to drive from, you know, south Mississippi to north of Dallas, Texas, order mm-hmm. to uh, go to his wife's house and let himself in and kill her, basically. Um, so that is, uh, it was capital murder that way, or he did it to prevent the divorce. Either way you slice it, he killed her, and he intended hmm. to kill her. Um, and after the sentencing hearing, uh, his sister testified and she tried to help him, but with all the prior domestic violence, um, testimony from Margaret and Sandra, as well as testimony about Rhoda, uh, and his bragging about Rhoda and lack of remorse about Rhoda. Uh, mm-hmm. The jury sentenced him to death. Okay. And so uh, the the next step was his direct appeal to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And the issues that he raised were, uh, first of all, the sufficiency of the evidence, arguing that there wasn't sufficient evidence of burglary or that he was trying to prevent a witness from proceeding in court um, as far as the capital murder. And that was analyzed and the Court of Criminal Appeals found that there was sufficient evidence of both. Um, They were estranged. She'd moved him out of the house. She'd asked for his keys back. So he had no business. And in Texas, you don't have to take something from a house to commit a burglary. And in a lot of states, you don't have to. If you go into the house and people are there under self-defense laws, they can kill you, whether you're armed or not. Because there's a presumption if you go into an occupied dwelling with the intent of committing burglary, you also have the intent of doing harm to anybody you may encounter within that dwelling. Right, absolutely. That's Um, a a pretty easy assumption. Right. And, you know, burglary, burglary comes down to you have no right to be in that place. That is burglary. Even if the door's open, even if the door's not locked, 
you're still committing a burglary if you open the door and set foot into that property. You don't have to take anything. You don't have to take a Picasso painting. You don't have to take a penny off the floor. It doesn't matter. Um, You're committing a burglary if you go into a place that you don't have a right to be. Um, So that is, and they also found that he may not have been challenging the divorce in court, but his text, repeated text to Tammy on the 20th and 23rd, suggests that he was not happy about the divorce. Um, They also argued the admissibility of Tammy's 911 call. And that was actually an interesting and probably promising area because the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, had just decided a case called Crawford versus Washington that involved a 911 call. And I haven't read the case in many, many years, but they basically found that the 911 call was hearsay and not admissible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe Crawford got a chance at a new trial. Um, okay. In um, this case, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals found that the call was admissible as a dying declaration of Tammy. In Crawford, they rejected the dying declaration exception. So so originally they said, no, it's not, and then they came back upon appeal and said, yeah, it is? Am I understanding well, correctly? Well, in Crawford, I think what happened – I think in Crawford what happened was in Crawford – the nature, the content of the call was more testimonial. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of depends on the content. In Crawford, I think they were actually using what the caller said on 911 to establish their case against Crawford. Mm-hmm. In essence, the victim who was deceased was testifying without cross-examination. Hmm. Okay. Um, And the analysis, if I'm recalling correctly, of the court in Crawford, the Supreme Court, was it wasn't a dying declaration and none of it, uh, because it was testimonial in nature, none of it was admissible under the exceptions the hearsay exceptions. Right, okay. In in this case, the call was different. They were, the information Tammy relayed was different. Um it wasn't testimonial, it was informational. Situational. Um and it was very brief. Mhm. Uh and it was information that's, you know, routinely gathered when you call 911 so that the 911 dispatcher can apprise responding parties of what's going on, what they're going to find when they get there. Um, they also found, like I said, they found it admissible as a dying declaration on behalf of Tammy. Mm-hmm. Um, they also argued... Uh, Tammy's robe, which was 
admitted during testimony from, I think, one of the uh, EMTs. The EMT, the testimony was, it was kind of, mm, I want to say the, the attorneys were trying to make the most out of a bad situation. They were basically taking it, the testimony and saying, the, you know, the, that witness testified she didn't know if that was her robe. Mm-hmm. When in fact she testified, I know that's the road because this is what I did. Hmm. Okay. She's the one who removed the robe when she arrived to treat Tammy. Um, they tried to say she couldn't say where the robe had been. That was their argument. She couldn't say where the robe had been or what had happened to the robe after she removed it. Mm-hmm. And essentially she doesn't have to. She was able to identify it as the robe Tammy was wearing, and she was able to identify it because of marks she made. And so that was all that was necessary for the robe to be admitted, because it was the robe that fibers from that robe were found in the truck. Right. So, um, which put Gardner at the scene of the shooting where he brought fibers from the road back to the truck. Um, Then they argued that uh, a conversation Gardner had with one of the Collin County detectives was uh, erroneously admitted. He didn't really make an admission. He was more like the, the detective was making leading statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying, you know, I want to give you a chance to tell your side of the story because I'm going to talk to Tammy and she's going to tell me what happened. And Gardner said, okay, you talk to her and she'll tell you. Hmm. Okay. And the son of a bitch was probably thinking she'll tell you I didn't do anything wrong. You know. Um, but uh, the court found that because he wasn't in custody the call was admissible and you know there was there was no no error in admitting the call um they also raised issues related to some of the challenges to the jury and the jury charges in the guilt and punishment phases and um they raised a claim regarding one of the state's arguments to the jury and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, again, found no error. Mm-hmm. And then they filed for a motion for new trial um, that was denied. And I can't remember what the... I can't remember now what the, what the um, information that they were basing the new trial request on. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't hmm. have time oh, to read this weekend. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, there was a concurring opinion where the judge or judges disagreed that this was a dying declaration, the 911 call was a dying declaration, because there was no evidence that Tammy knew she was dying. And you have to have some evidence that they know they're dying. 
uh, for it to mm-hmm. be a dying declaration, or at least in those judges' minds you do. Uh, even though there are multiple factors that the made the majority of the court applied to come to the dying declaration. However, they found that the 911 call was actually an excited utterance and therefore was admissible. Um, hmm. and why don't we do this? Why don't we take a little break? Okay. And um, I will try to figure out what that topic of new trial was. Okay. Sounds good. Well, you're listening. While we do that. We'll be right back after this. And every Monday night, join Michael Carnahan, Tolly Brim, and Sean Castleberry for the American Idiot Show, a humorous look at the top headlines and the stories dividing our country. It's the American Idiot Show right here on Talk Radio 49. Tuesday night, join Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien for the Clear and Convincing Podcast, live on Talk Radio 49. A look at the most important cases in the country's history, not from the court of public opinion, but from the eyes of the court, every Tuesday night, live right here on Talk Radio 49.
State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We the jury duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been a wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien, where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. And we're back. Did I give you enough time, Lisa? Yes, perfect. Um, So the motion for new trial was actually... um, whether there was even a motion for new trial. <laughs> he was, uh, Gardner was complaining that the court didn't hold a hearing. Apparently, Gardner filed a motion for new trial, or his attorney filed a motion for new trial in the record, but they never delivered a copy of that motion to the judge or saw that that motion was set for hearing. Mm-hmm. And so basically, while there was a motion for new trial technically filed, they didn't follow through. There's nothing in the record that shows the judge got the motion. There's no notation on the docket setting a hearing date. There are no orders setting a hearing date. So basically... Um, something, you know, his attorney dropped the ball and whatever grounds he may have had or believed he had, um, his attorney did not get them before the court in the time required. So Hmm. that is, uh, that is basically... What happens? I mean, sometimes attorneys do that to protect the record. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it was kind of a non a non-starter, and it doesn't say what the grounds were, right? Because again, the the substance of the motion is irrelevant when. He couldn't even show that he timely presented it to the court, to the judge, or or requested a hearing. Right, right, absolutely. So, uh, so that was the uh, state direct appeal, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied uh, the writ on October fourth, twenty ten, uh, which suggests to me that. Again, Tammy, Tammy's phone 911 call didn't fall within Crawford. So, um, hmm. you know, they, they didn't look at 
they didn't look at it because it was a case exactly like Crawford. It was distinguishable from Crawford. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, the next phase began was the state post-conviction. And that is where his new counsel came up with the theory of abandonment rage. Uh, They also made claims against his trial attorneys at guilt and punishment phases, Mm -hmm. as well as a failure to investigate mitigation, because there were other witnesses that could have been brought forward to testify about uh, what a horrible person Rhoda was because she was apparently talking to her ex-husband while she was refusing to divorce Gardner. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What a, a horrible person Tammy was because Tammy liked to play games with Gardner. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then they also, for the first time, raised a confrontation clause violation related to the 911 call. Um, the trial court recommended that the writ be denied and the, T, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied the writ. Gardner had a pretty lengthy trip through federal habeas court. Um, he requested and was granted the uh, appointed counsel in 2010, which mm-hmm. I believe was actually the state post-conviction counsel. So even if you have a public defender during the trial and direct appeal phases and even in state post-conviction phase, there's still an opportunity once you get to federal court of potentially having counsel appointed and paid to represent you. Right. Um, They also received, requested, and were granted ex parte funding of some expert witnesses. Uh, This means it was done without identifying those witnesses or theories um, to the state. So that's pretty generous, and that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, I don't know exactly what witnesses they wanted, but um, or expert witnesses they wanted. More likely than not, it was probably psychological. Um, witnesses to expand upon the abandonment rage. One year after that, they uh, the, fir- the habeas writ was filed. Mm-hmm. And um, Gardner requested a hearing and expansion of the record because he hadn't adequately presented information to the state court. Limited expansion of the record was allowed. Mm-hmm. Because remember, in federal, when you get to federal court, all of your evidence should have been admitted at the state level. Um, so 
you shouldn't need a hearing in federal court if you're a state prisoner because everything should go to the state court first and then the federal court looks at it and determines whether the state court decisions were reasonable. Fair or, enough. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was granted in 2012. And then in um, the, an issue was raised as to whether or not the council representing Gardner in state court, who is now representing him in habeas court, had a conflict under Trevino and Martinez, which basically deal with state post-conviction performance of counsel. Right. And the federal court, after remand by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2015, appointed an attorney to raise some claims related to Martinez and Trevino in federal habeas court. Uh, That council filed an amended petition in 2015. And then in 2018, three years later, after briefing, uh, relief on all of Gardner's claims was denied by the federal district court in a 77-page memorandum in order. Uh, Damn. Okay. And the case was dismissed on on March 20th, 2018. Yeah, and this is all the, you know, these were all the the claims. Why are are these so long, man? Like, why don't they just send something out like, hey, yo, you're denied. Hey, you're approved. Well, no, and actually this is... explanation they can always ask. Well, what the... What the federal courts do, and I can, you know, I can attest to this in all the research that I've done, I very rarely come across a memorandum order in a habeas at the district court level mm-hmm. that is less than, I think the shortest one I've ever found is five pages. Holy damn. That's a lot. And of that's one. That's 35 pages is one where the the guy was only raising three or four issues. What the hell? Who types I mean, things? most of these, most of the ones I find are over 50 pages long. God bless. And, uh, you know, Rodney Reed, uh-huh. the final order in his case. 181 pages. Yeah. 181 pages. Who has the time to type this shit? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to work for a federal judge. Yeah. You got to be a quick typer. My goodness. Otherwise, you ain't going to get shit done. You know, I don't, I think probably the, the, the clerks, the law clerks, the judges right. do a lot of the research and a lot of the writing mm-hmm. and then the judges polish it okay kind of pencil whip it a little bit 
yeah, I you know I don't know though I I I don't have any any direct experience. Um, right. But I I would expect that the law clerks kind of brief it out and then the judges flush it out. Right. Um. Although unfortunately, one of these days somebody's going to want to start asking questions. Um, yeah. And end up casting aspersions on judges, saying, I mean, oh, no you didn't do the work. No offense, but I mean, I'd, I'd just automatically, as soon as I got it, I'd start asking questions. My first question is, okay, what's all this mean? I don't want to read 80, 100 and how much did you say for Rodney? 181 pages? 181 pages. Well, yeah. because they, but they, you know, they kind of, um, they analyze you know, federal habeas law, they they kind of summarize the underlying facts of the case. I'm assuming the they, client doesn't get a majority of these, right? Like, the client won't get a majority of these 181 pages, correct? Well, the well, it depends. The federal prisoner, you know, they're entitled to everything that goes on in their case. Right. And so they may get the... the they may get the opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Whether mm-hmm. they look at it or not, I, I don't know. Right. Also true. Um but uh yeah, I I you know, like I said, I I the shortest memorandum and order I've ever found was a case that was only raising two or three issues. And it's literally two or three. Like a lot of times I'm saying four issues, but there are, you know, 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E, 2A, 2B, 2B3, you know, multiple issues, multiple facts supporting those issues, multiple arguments. And, you know, like his main argument is a jury should have heard that he is a person who suffers from Abandonment rage. Okay. And if they'd heard he suffers from abandonment rage, they would not have sentenced him to death. Right. Honey, it's not rage in the title. They would have sentenced him to death because it proves he's dangerous. Yeah, I apologize. I know we kind of got off on the tangent, but I was just sitting here thinking like, holy shit. Yeah. So you're saying when somebody leaves him, he gets so mad, he's going to kill. Right. And you think a jury is going to say, oh, he should he should be in prison for the rest of his life. I would. No, he's a future danger. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what if he really likes his cellmate, not in a sexual or, or any, you know, inappropriate way. But he just they yeah. get they get along really well, and then he finds out his cellmate doesn't want to be a cellmate with him anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like his cellmate wants to, you know, his cellmate wants to go go to a cell with another guy. Right. He's going to so get he's mad. Gonna get so, upset yeah, he's... and and be because he's being abandoned, and so then he's going to shank the guy. Oh, sure. Good point. He's not going to be able to control himself. You know, Good rage point. is uncontrollable anger. So you're Bad you're enough. saying, you know, he he can't control himself when somebody leaves him. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's future danger, which in Texas, 
makes you eligible for the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal of the federal habeas claim on June 19, 2019, and Gardner's writ to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied on January 14, 2020, which uh-huh. paved the way for Gardner's execution. Uh, his counsel did file additional requests for review. Um, trying different angles to mm-hmm. get a stay of execution, but they were not successful. And on January 15, 2020, Gardner was executed in the death chamber at Huntsville. Um, let me see. He had... Uh, Let me see what his he uh his last words final statement was I'd like to say sorry for your grief. I hope what I'm doing today will give you peace, joy, closure, whatever it takes to forgive. I am sorry. I know you cannot forgive me, but I hope one day you will. And then he spoke to some friends who watched from another viewing room, told them he loved them, and uh, then asked the warden to go forward with the punishment because I want to see the Lord Jesus so bad. Hmm. And he added that he would ask Jesus to help them forgive me one day, please. Uh, He apologized one more time, said I love you, and thanked the warden. And then he was pronounced dead at six thirty six PM. Well, I mean he got off the uh got off the ride before COVID started, so good for him on that aspect. Yeah, um yeah, he was That was uh, a shitty joke in I January. Know. You can, you can, no, you no, can it's I mean it's true. Because yeah, it it, it but it's 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 kinda sorta true. Um January is when we were just starting to hear about this but interestingly, I was watching two or three weeks ago. I was watching the Law and Order reruns on WeTV. Mm-hmm. And guess what they were talking about in, it was probably 2000. What's that? Coronavirus. It well, yeah, I mean, that's at the time. Like supposedly like the 19th iteration, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, or the 19th strand or some shit like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, and it was, that was, that was just as bad. Very high fever, respiratory issues. Um, You know, young kids and old people were dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, this is a, a another strain, but it's right. not, it's not new. Right. Exactly. And it keeps the, the problem is it keeps mutating. So when they, when they're close to developing a vaccine, 
which would only give people who get the vaccine antibodies right to fight the infection if they're exposed um it it mutates and changes so that the antibodies that are developed won't do any good right so um and if people truly think that Joseph Biden is going to take office and cure coronavirus like that, they're, you know, I've got a couple of four or five bridges that oh, yeah. I'm ready I'm pretty to get rid sure. of. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, you uh, know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Joe would even tell you that he's not going to cure coronavirus. Coronavirus. But is that's what everybody through. acts you know, they act like Donald Trump could have cured it. No, couldn't have. He, you know, because <sighs> he's yeah. not a doctor. You're right. You're um, right. And, you know, like I said, I he was damned if he did, damned if he did. Right. If he had done everything and said everything the CDC recommended he would be criticized for not thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all this stuff about not talking about it soon enough and not uh, downplaying it. Well, yeah, he doesn't want to cause a panic. Panic. If he had and caused a panic, he would be criticized. That's true. That's true. You know, so it, and any president is damned if they do and damned if they don't sometimes. Mm-hmm. No matter which side of the aisle. You're right. I'm getting so freaking sick and tired of politics. You would not believe. <laughs> you and me both. Um, so glad it's. Well, I used to be I'm, a Democrat, but I'm independent now. Fingers crossed. So I, glad it's. Yeah, for four years. Yeah, well, you know, we were joking the other day. I was, or last night on the on the uh, podcast, I was telling them, I was like, shoot, before too long, it's going to be the day after election day in twenty twenty four, and they're going to start the next day. Which I mean, to be yeah. fair, uh, our senator here from Arkansas has already expressed interest in running in twenty twenty four. So, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> so all right well that is uh that is john stephen gardner thank goodness we got through with no delays with no delays and no disruptions right it was exactly. the disruptions that annoyed the crap out of me yeah true <laughs> true so um but I think I, I think we'll stay with blog talk and okay. Um, you know, I, I, it's just tried and true. Right, exactly. So now let's go over real quick because I I had a um a question on Facebook, and hopefully <laughs> that person is listening. Uh, where can listeners find clear and convincing? podcast they can find it on itunes by searching at talk radio 490 they can find it right here on the blog talk page 
Um, they can find it on Facebook. We share the link each and every week. And uh, they can find it on YouTube at Clan Convincing Podcast. Okay. Let me see if I figured anything else, if I forgot anything. I don't think I've forgotten anything. Thing. I think those are the we're four. on Stitcher. We've I I've searched us and we've come up we've come up on Stitcher. I was about to say when you when you get into these, honestly, a lot of these end up using the same. Uh, I I don't even know what to call it, but we end up on ones that I've never put us on, and I'm just like, okay, cool, <laughs> cool. Okay. Now, did you say something about iHeartRadio? Um, we may be on iHeart. I forget, honestly, at this point. Uh, let me look. Okay. We may As be. Producer, I don't know. It is your we job were... to keep track of these things. <laughs> <laughs> we're on something called Podbay. I've never heard of Podbay, but we're on something called Podbay as well. Okay. We have 14 episodes on Podbay for crying out loud. Oh, about. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, yeah, we're in season three, and this is episode 23. Oh, yeah. between Well, it's between this show and all the other ones we were doing on here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is, I think that's, that's we're going to finish up a little early tonight. That's okay. okay. Um, I th- unless you you want to talk about anything else, I can't think of anything really that we have that we haven't pretty much gone up. If I could keep my microphone to my mouth, that we haven't gone over everything. <laughs> uh, everything seems to be this one seems pretty cut and dry to me. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're back next week and we're going to finish off the rest of the year. Um, got some interesting episodes coming up. Uh, and then our last episode at the end of season three, we're going to do an update episode. Woo! Yay! Um, yeah, because there's, there are little things happening I was about in to a say, bunch I of cases. I have a feeling it'll be a short one, but you know, but not so much enough, you know, not enough to fill two hours at this point. Because I was thinking right. about doing a, an update episode right before Thanksgiving. Right, but then there's exactly. not really that much. I mean, there's Rodney Reed, of course, Scott Peterson. Everybody's heard he's getting a new penalty phase because there was a, uh, there was error in choosing a jury, so he's getting the penalty, getting a redo on the penalty phase, and the case has also been remanded to the trial court to determine whether or not there was juror misconduct on the part of a single juror. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like now the penalty phase is going to be on hold until they determine whether there was uh, misconduct. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that he is definitely going to get a new trial. 
I know his sister-in-law thinks that, but um, the the court is basically going to hear from all the witnesses. Right. And it's going to hear directly from the juror at issue, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, what happened was one of the jurors did not, did not disclose that she had taken out a restraining order against a former boyfriend's current girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And that she had been threatened by said girlfriend while she was... Okay. Um, the state's explanation in their briefing is, and it's reasonable to me, that when she was being questioned, she didn't equate the the issue she had with the former girlfriend with girlfriend of the former boyfriend or the boyfriend's former girlfriend i can't remember what the exactly what the circumstances were she didn't equate that with what happened with Scott and Lacey and Amber Fry. okay and she it it, it wasn't criminal charges a, a restraining order is a civil proceeding not a criminal proceeding but mm-hmm. it is a civil proceeding, but she didn't uh, she didn't disclose that. Well, yeah, I was a you know I was a complainant in a, a restraining order situation. Um, but again, like I said, we'll have to hear from the juror. Okay. As to whether when she was asked the question, she maybe didn't totally understand the question. She didn't equate what happened with a. You know, she thought they were asking about criminal proceedings, which she had been had never been involved in. Hmm. Um, but it's going to be the trial court will decide whether or not um, to recommend relief, and then the California Supreme Court will ultimately decide. But we'll talk about that more. Okay. Hell on yeah. our last episode, and then of course. We'll have the the hearings, hopefully some some information from the hearings in Rodney Reed, because those were right. back to February. So right, I'm ready for Rodney to uh, start uh, moving forward. Yeah, well, the, this is going to be hearings, and then the trial judge is going to make a decision, and then the Court of Criminal Appeals is going to decide whether or not to. Hear it. Follow the recommendation or go their own way. Okay. But, I'm, I mean, you and I have talked about it. I don't think these, especially the law enforcement witnesses, I don't think that they're going to fare very well at these hearings. Because their failure to disclose this information during the original investigation, before Rodney Reed was ever even a suspect... Mm-hmm. While Jimmy Finnell was a prime suspect, going to be, I mean, uh, I can imagine cross-examination of these guys. I want popcorn. I'm going to be watching it with popcorn. True, 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 Because it's, it's going to be, it's going to be seeing them try to explain why they didn't report these statements of Jimmy Finnell in 1996 is going to be hilarious. 
when they try okay. to explain it and or justify it. Mark my words. Okay. Or well, they're not going to testify. And if they don't testify, that is going to be even worse for Rodney Reed. Okay. So, all righty. Well, let's put a bow on this one. Let's do it. You ready? Yes, ma'am. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, November 17, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 24, State of California versus Helen Galay and Olga Rutterschmidt. In the late 1990s, these two geriatric women came up with a scheme to get rich through insurance payouts. The women befriended, befriended Paul Vados, a Hungarian immigrant living on the streets of Los Angeles, California. For two years, Gole paid the rent on a Hollywood apartment, and Rutterschmidt helped Vados take care of himself. Done their scheme, Vados had to die, and the grandmas weren't too squeamish or kind-hearted to kill. Michael and I will talk about the insurance scam, the 2005 murder of Kenneth McDavid that exposed their scheme, and their 2008 trial, conviction, and sentences. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.